You're listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. How the bloody hell are you, Sal? I'm bloody good, mate. How are you doing? I'm I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah? Yeah. What's been what's been happening in your world? You say all right, that sounded like a bit of a Oh, you know, just the usual grief and life and motherhood and busyness and all the craziness of life. I think yeah, just I'm okay. I'm doing all right at the moment. I'm reading into it. <laughs> overthinking. I mean, I am a bit of an overthinker. Yeah. Um how are you? I'm all right. I feel like this time of year is it's the it's coming into that like you know the milestones the death anniversary the funeral birthdays like it's yeah it's a, it's oh, a lot the lead up the big old lead up the big old lead up so I feel like for me I can feel it you know I feel it in my body I feel just a bit tired and and you know, sometimes when you're a bit further along in your grief for me it's like having to remember that oh you've got a few things coming up like I'm questioning myself like why do I feel this way like just feel a bit slower than normal in a way you know and like I'm not necessarily feeling griefy all the time but the body keeping the bloody score (laughs) but we don't always acknowledge it right especially when we're a little bit further down the track and we're thinking about a lot of other things rather than our grief being the main thing that we're thinking about. So for me, I have to kind of take a step back and be like, oh, just remember, there's quite a lot coming up for you. It's probably why you're feeling this way and just a bit, you know what I mean? Oh, gosh, I know what you mean. Like thinking back to, so my chunk is around the start of the year, isn't it? Like all my milestones all close, close in with one another. And I, to be honest, like I was depressed. Like Mm. I got really low and I got into a really dark hole of depression and I had to kind of strip everything back, you know, even years into my loss, I had to go back to basics, which is what we talk about is really helpful when you're, when you're struggling. Like I just had to let go of all expectations of myself and, um, try and find a bit of hope again. Cause it, you can kind of go into that like a hopeless feeling of like, oh, just don't see any brightness in the future at the moment. Like I know for me, that was definitely my experience, but it's really tough. And I think it's important, isn't it? To like, just remember that sometimes it is the grief, it ebbs and flows, right? And you could mm-hmm. be years down the track and feel like, think certain things happen or there are milestones, reminders, things that you're coping with in life. And it can you can feel griefier than you did. And like you said, like, yes. really low. And yeah. I think we can judge ourselves, can't we? Like, I was judging myself, like, oh, fucking hell. Again, like, here I am again. Feeling still grieving. Like, still grieving, <laughs> like, feeling tired, just feeling a bit out of sorts. Like, and I had to, like, stop and be like, hang on a minute. Like, yes, you do all this work. Yes, you talk about grief all the time, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to be feeling certain ways, especially when there's a lot going on in terms of reminders. And I think, like, it's just taking that pressure off no matter where you're at, like in your journey and how long it's been. Like, it doesn't matter how long it's been. You've, you're still going to feel the grief and you've got to give yourself grace. And you mentioned him, like, I know, like, the, the start of the year was really hard for you and you that mm. you felt really low. Like, was there anything that helped you, do you reckon? Knowing that I have come from a really dark place and I've come out of it, that yeah. really helped Whereas when mum first died and I was in that 
dark pit of despair, I couldn't see a way out. But I knew that I had been in there before. I knew the same feelings. It was the same kind of just, yeah, just, I guess, hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I'd found my way out of it before. And so I just kept reminding myself, I've, I've, I've got this, like I've been through this, I can do it again, I can do hard things, and it's not always going to feel this way. And that was yes. kind of the mantra that I kept telling myself, it won't always feel this way. And slowly but surely it started to lift and I could start to see the light again. And But, yeah, when you're in it, it's so hard. Like it's like when you're in like a bit of depression, it's so hard to see anything outside of it and like I don't really get depressed often um anxiety is something that I experience more but Mm. I have felt depression a couple of times in my life and it yeah it's it's just you're clouded by it so yeah if anyone's listening and they and they can relate to that feeling of just feeling hopeless and helpless it will shift and it will change and and you cannot see it right now but I yeah and on the topic of like not knowing what it was or one thing like I do think that there was a trigger for me around that time as well and I think this ties into today's episode really nicely is uh there was a lot of things going on in my personal relationships at that time that because I was already dealing enough with the grief like all of these things started compounding and all of these like issues that were happening with people that I care about in my family and dynamics were shifting and things felt really out of my control it was definitely a trigger for me to fall into feeling mm. depressed about life. And, and I'd already lost my mom and I felt like I was losing other people. And yeah, it was a, a really, really hard time. So sometimes there isn't an identifiable cause to the way that you're feeling. And sometimes there may be things happening in your life that's impacting the way that you feel. Um, but yeah, so that was a biggie, like learning about just relationships and boundaries and finding inner peace. I feel like I was just on an, finding an inner peace journey, wasn't I, Sal? Totally. And it is, yeah, it is a journey. And, um, and I think, yeah, that is a really good point. Like sometimes there's a, there isn't a trigger necessarily. It's just maybe a lead up or a build up of certain things, things that you might not be conscious of, like anxiety, Josh, Josh Fletcher talks about the stress jug, right? Things kind of, you've got a certain capacity for stress and things layer on top and then one too many things, it overflows yeah. and it can cause anxiety. But then on the other hand, like you say, there can be triggers and there can be things that are happening in your life. And I think just, yeah, just being really open and honest about it, as we always try and do, it's important, right? Just yeah. it's okay to to have these ups and downs and with your like inner peace journey in and relationships, like what like actually helped, what was like genuinely helpful for you when it, when it came to that? Um, learning about boundaries. Also knowing that this goes back to a quote from Dr. Edith Eager. Like I was listening back to her episode and she said that Auschwitz was an opportunity for her to learn that life is from inside out. And I think I just have this realization that like, no one is going to be able to make me feel better, but me, no one has got control of my life, but me, no one's showing up to fix my problems. It's on me to do that. 
And so I think that that's where the inner peace comes into play. It's like knowing that you've actually got control of how you react and respond to situations. Totally. And I think that's a cornerstone of inner peace. And it's something that we study a lot when we're doing coaching and, um, you are accountable for how you feel. No one else is responsible for you. You're accountable for, for what's going on internally and it is work, but you, but you can't expect anyone else to, to do that for you. And like, yeah, Mm. so that's a really, that's a massive like realization and a massive learning because it is so important. Like only you can, can make yourself feel better, better. And it's really, and once you know that and once you do that, that can be a game changer. Yeah. How you, how you respond to situations as well. Yeah. Respond, not react. I was very reactive. Um, the, the other thing that was interesting was learning about myself when mum died is whenever anything went wrong in my life, I immediately pick up the phone and I tell mum and she'd make me feel better. Mm. And it was a kind of a, yeah, a bit of a toxic pattern that I would do. And like, whenever things were going wrong, whenever I was feeling really shit, I'd just look externally for gratification that everything was going to be okay. And I never looked inward to tell Is myself. Is it like a quite co- quite codependent? Yeah. In, yeah. yeah, very codependent. And I never had the confidence within me to tell myself that everything was going to be okay. I never had that. And so it was like also, yeah, I've just been practicing my, yeah, just learning that like I am confident. I am a good person. I have got this shit, you know, I'm doing my best. I've, you know, got this, you know, all that really positive self-talk, which yes. I was not good at. I, I realized that I had so much negative self-talk um, happening inside me that it was just dragging me down. And then I'd look externally for people to make me feel better. And then relationships were turning to shit and they weren't making me feel better. They were making me feel worse. And then it just was this really bad spiral. So yeah, it's been a it's been a journey hate that word but (laughs) it it bloody is though isn't it It is a journey and um and two people that have been on a journey with grief and the way that we talk about grief are today's guests um Lisa and Eleanor from what's your grief and a lot of you listening have probably heard of what's your grief because they are probably the main kind of grief resource in terms of like website and blogs and articles and they've got a podcast they've got a book they're on insta they're on all the social channels they're brilliant aren't they and they really talk about grief in a really real and realistic way yeah because they are mental health professionals but they're also grievers and they're also just really cool chicks so we love like we love their work but something that we haven't covered really in depth on the podcast is like relationships and support systems but it's something that we hear a lot from you guys and about family conflicts like we were just talking about and changes to friendships or support circles so we're excited to be talking about this today with the what's your grief gals Yes. And we also talk about complicated grief and grieving uh, somebody who is still alive or somebody that you had a difficult relationship with, you know, that ambiguous grief. And that's something that we hear from a lot of you. So we're really excited that we actually got to talk to some experts about that today. And we also talked about grieving styles, which we bang on about all the time. So it was good to actually like chew the fat with people who (laughs) know about the grief theories and they had some interesting perspectives didn't they and yeah yeah just so many juicy um juicy griefy bits in this convo so enjoy guys hope that you get as much from this as we did 
it is so good to have you join us today. You guys are grief legends, having started What's Your Grief in, was it 2012? End of 2012, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty amazing. You guys were well ahead of the curve then in terms of talking about grief and providing grief education and making it an accessible topic. And I would love to know, like, what made you start What's Your Grief? Like, what's the story behind it? Yeah, as you (laughs) sort of mentioned, even though it was, well, it doesn't feel that long ago, I guess. Um, It was a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of content being available to people online. Uh, it's, It's surprising to think about that now because I feel like now there's a lot. There's a lot online. There are so many different websites. There are so many different Instagram accounts and communities and virtual resources. But at the time when we started What's Your Grief, there really wasn't a lot out there. And what was out there was just not... Um, it really wasn't the type of stuff that we were looking for. Just a little background on us. Uh, we're both mental health professionals who met working in the field of grief and bereavement, providing support to people at the time of a loved one's death in hospitals um, all throughout our state. Uh, and we were meeting them then and then providing support to them for two years afterwards. So we were meeting people from all different walks of life, experiencing all different types of losses, and then trying to provide support to them at all different points in their grief. Another thing about us is that we both experienced the death of a parent in early adulthood. So when we were looking for resources, we were really looking through two different lenses. One, our mental health lens, and the two, just like, is this something we would have ever wanted to read or use or utilize when we were grieving? And the answer was like almost always no. There was a lot of stuff that just really didn't appeal to how we liked to talk about grief and think about grief. Uh, so after complaining for a long time that there weren't the resources out there that we were wanting as grievers and as mental health professionals, we just said like, hey, let's start a blog. Because back then blogs were still really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm waiting for them to come back around. Like, I love blogs. I'm waiting for them Same. to be cool again. Uh, but we just started it then. We were just writing, churning out articles. That was all we were doing at the time. We had, like, we were psyched when we got, like, 50 people to the site to read our articles. And we just kept going. And it, it's really grown from there. Your site is incredible. Oh, my gosh. The information that you guys have up there, and it's so easily accessible and digestible. Like We absolutely love your site. So anyone listening, do go and check it out. It answers pretty much every grief question that there <laughs> ever was in this earth. Um, but I'm curious to know, maybe, Leet, so you can answer this one. Did experiencing grief at a young age lead you into doing the work that you're doing, do you think, like as mental health professionals as well? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like it informs our work so much for sure, though it definitely was not what brought either of us to working in grief. Um, mm-hmm. I think like my, I was 18 when my dad died and I had no interest. Like I didn't support groups were not for me. Therapy was not for me. Like I didn't use any traditional grief support. I was definitely not one of those people who was like, I was so helped by this. Now I'm going to go into helping people who are grieving. Um, I went like a completely different path. I got my master's in philosophy and was like going to be an academic. And then I went a whole different way and I started working in homeless services and kids who were in uh, juvenile services and foster care. Like I was in a whole kind of different world. And then it was a little bit more by 
chance, I guess, like I, that I sort of ended up working in grief. I met Elle and we really connected over our own losses while we were working there. And, you know, I had gone back to graduate school and learned a lot, not necessarily a lot about grief, but a lot about mental health. And so it came from there, but it definitely wasn't one of the, you know, some people have those stories of like, I went through my loss and then I changed to, to help people through grief. And that was definitely not my story at all. <laughs> and not really yours either, Al, right? No, no, actually, I, I was finishing my master's program and just looking for a job on monster.com. <laughs> and <laughs> I applied to the organization where, like I said, I met Lita. Uh, and that was my first job out of grad school. And after two weeks after I started working there, my mom died. So it actually, I experienced the, my loss. Um, well, the pri my primary loss that I always talk about um, after I started working in the field. I think the fact that my mom died when she did. And um, I think I think what it did for me was keep me in the work. And I think it also is the reason why I'm here at what's your grief. Like, I think it's, it's what's behind what's your grief, but not what's behind me getting into this work in the beginning, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. I would definitely say that too. Like what's your grief. I had not had a personal loss. So much of it was like all this stuff that was like, this is off. Like we would never use any of this. We ourselves and our own grief right. and would never have given it to anybody. And that definitely was what propelled a lot of our work with what's your grief. Yes. Cause the, the way that you write your content and the way that you talk about grief is it's so real. It's so accessible. Like reading your blog posts and your articles, it's just like, oh, this is real language. It yeah. makes sense. It's not, it doesn't feel clunky or, you know, a lot of the grief support out there, it's changing now. But it, I, I imagine when you guys started, it was probably quite clunky and cold yeah. and outdated. And I think you guys really have led the way in like revitalizing and revamping how, you know, grief is just because it's a difficult topic doesn't mean that yeah. it has to be communicated in a way that's boring yeah. or. Well, it's a, it's a human topic. And for many of us, it's a everyday topic. And if not every day, like uh, an often uh, topic. And I, I really appreciate you saying that. That's so, that's so, I don't know, gratifying a little bit because we were hoping to do that. Uh, I don't want to, no disrespect uh, to the resources and the support and everything that preceded us. But the, I just, the aesthetic was off for us. Like it was a lot of people like looking out at horizons and like butterflies and like, that's great if that's your thing, but it just wasn't our thing. And it was a lot of tilted heads and a little bit of a patronizing tone and everything was pretty overgeneralized. There was nothing like really getting into the specifics about a lot of things and just talking about it the way we would talk about it uh, as friends and as people who talk about all sorts of stuff about life and death and grief. So that was our goal. And it's nice to hear that uh, maybe we accomplished it to a degree. <laughs> totally. You absolutely have. And we really enjoyed reading your book also called What's Your Grief, which again, super relatable, great language, even fun at times. And you actually have a section. So a lot of it is written out in lists, right? And you have a section about grief theories that aren't the five stages, which we loved. Lisa, I'd love to know, like, what, which ones are your fave? 
Yeah. Um, well, I think our probably our two our two favorites. I mean, I think every griever's like fave is con- continuing bonds theory because it's the one that's like, yes, we're supposed to have connections with people who died. Um, we're not supposed to, but it's not pathological if we don't. Um, if we have like these connections, and so I think we really love that. And I think so many of the unfortunately the grief theories that people know about are like the old school grief work models, the five stages of grief that leave people with this idea that we're supposed to put people in the past and move forward. And so I think continuing bonds, like you can't help but love that. If you had a good relationship with the person who died, like that idea that we keep that connection, I think is so important. But I think the other one we love is the dual process model of bereavement. I think that formulates the way we conceptualize a lot of the support that we offer to people and what, and how we help people to understand this idea that grief is ongoing, but we're kind of always bouncing back and forth between what they call loss-oriented and restoration-oriented kind of grieving and coping. So there's the really direct stuff that we're doing where we're like actually digging into our grief and the all the things I think we traditionally think of as those that grief work and emotions. But then like a lot of grieving is just rebuilding our lives after loss. It's like trying to figure out how to be a human in the world after this person is gone. And that restoration stuff, sometimes that is avoiding grief. Sometimes it's like getting breaks from grief and totally escaping. It's doing the stuff that's just figuring out living that doesn't feel to a lot of people like like grieving, but it is. And you're always kind of bouncing back and forth and oscillating between those things. And it's an ongoing process. And so I think we just, I think that that helps people to give themselves permission to take breaks and avoid and to be like, of course, we're not just all the time grieving, 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 and then getting back to life. Like that's not how it works. It's always this bouncing back and forth that goes on for a long time after, after loss it's forever, really in some way. I love that theory because it also normalizes all of it, right? All of the shit because we judge ourselves so harshly. We're like, oh, my God, I should be further along. Or why aren't I grieving like Sal? And, you know, it just yeah. normalizes everything. You know, it's all yeah. kind of normal, whatever, however you're grieving, however that looks. So, yeah, that theory is amazing. And we'd love to know over the almost 11 years, you guys, since you started What's Your Grief or however long it's been, I can't do math because of grief brain, which we'll probably get into. Um, What are some of the most common experiences that you hear from grievers? Oh, gosh. Um, Where do you start, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, I I think uh, surprise at what the experience actually is. I think is, is one, uh, people feeling very overwhelmed and taken aback by the wide range of experiences that they're going to going through. This is like kind of a non-answer because I'm like saying all of it. Right. But I think people are often surprised that grief is like, it's all these different types of emotions, things like yearning, things like sadness, maybe even feeling like nothing, feeling very numb. Uh, but it's also often something that manifests physically in aches and pains and headaches and fatigue. Uh, it's often also something that really tears down a lot of people's worldview in a very significant way and causes them to feel like the world they're walking through that yesterday maybe looked to a degree sunny and warm and safe looks like a world full of jagged, sharp edges. So I think that just 
the sort of overwhelm and surprise of realizing like how big an experience this is. And like you said, it, that theory normalizes all the shit. Like, I also think people are very surprised by the amount of shit there is, right? All these secondary <laughs> losses that they go through, all the other dominoes that fall uh, down as a result of that primary loss. So that's, that's one that I would say, I don't know. What would you say, Lisa? Yeah, I, I was trying to think about it. You know, I think like, I, it's interesting. Cause I think in real life versus the internet, like I think the internet skews it I, for me of like, mm-hmm. when I think of what's most common ver- in the work we did with people grieving in the real world versus online. Um, I think it's, it's very different. I think there's like a certain type of person who's drawn to online grief support. And so I think we hear about certain, like, I think online we hear a lot of people who talk a lot about their support system, not being there for them. Right. People of feeling like, you know, not supported, but I think that's a lot in large part because people on the internet are seeking support they've felt abandoned by their support system so they're looking for an instagram page or a podcast or a website or whatever because they don't have it in real life i think i found there were a lot more people who were on one extreme or the other but oftentimes were amazed by how their support system did show up or how they like really connected with people you know there was more of that but i think in the online space we hear more of people I don't know, that kind of wanting to complain. <laughs> I hate to like put it that way, but kind of wanting to complain about it because I think that that's often what brings them to the online space. But I don't think that that's necessarily universal in grieving in general, but is is a big part of what we hear because we're in the online mm-hmm. space. Yeah. Yes, that's so interesting because it's something that we hear a lot too from our audience that people not showing up or people being surprised by people dropping off or not behaving the way that they expect them to or having clashes within their family unit it's a massive one isn't it in that we hear as well huge and yeah i think changing relationship dynamics whether that's friendships whether that's your family it's really common like as we all just said but what are some reasons for you know people maybe not showing up or having a feeling like you've got conflicts with family members does that come down to like different grieving styles does it come down to expectations like what's going on from your experience I think every relationship is so incredibly unique we, we get so many questions about relationships and it is always so hard to give a really good response because it's like this relationship probably has so many layers but I do think some of the common things that we see I, I especially within families or within groups of people where everybody's grieving the same loss I do think what you mentioned is true I think it does often come down to different grieving styles and different needs and the reality that people can't necessarily be there for each other in the way that they were before. Uh, We see so many different misunderstandings arise between people because one person is, is, um, somebody who really wants to express their emotions and explore their emotions and wants to talk about things and wants to maybe, um, maybe revisit memories. And then the other person is maybe a more hands-on griever, somebody who is more like, I'm very practical. I'm very rational. I'm more intellectualized things. Uh, and what we know is that both types of grieving are healthy and normal. Um, and so, 
uh, a lot of times we see this conflict because the person who's really emotional is like, why are you so cold? Or why are you moving on? Why aren't you grieving? Why don't you care? And they're like, I, I do care. Like, I just am, am doing things differently. Uh, but we do see a lot of conflicts arise just because people are are doing things differently and need things that they um, that they aren't getting and don't really understand what's going on with the person sort of sitting next to them. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that when we're, you know, we've talked and written about this before. I think when we're grieving, like we have been hurt so deeply, like it's the most fundamental, like we're in such deep pain that we, I think are really self-protective of not wanting to endure any additional pain. So we become super sensitive. Like we're hard, people grieving are so hard on the people around them. Like it is brutal. And most people grieving will look back at themselves before a loss and will be like, I screwed things up. I like look back and I have all these regrets about what I said to other people or how I didn't show up or, you know, whatever. But we're not very able. I mean, we've done surveys of this with like a thousand people and 97% were like, yes, I screwed up all sorts of stuff before my loss. But like, we often can't extend that empathy in the moment because we're just busy protecting ourselves. And we're like, wow, if this person you know, couldn't get it right or didn't show up exactly the way I want to. We don't feel like we can expend the energy sometimes to try to give people feedback and like repair the relationship. And we just feel like we want to be more protective and just be like, oh, I'm just Mm going to shut this down to not risk even more hurt from other people. So I think part of it is that it's like, it's like we're all in this raw state. And so we're so hypersensitive to how other people are there or not there for us, that it really intensifies Mm -hmm. our responses. Yeah. And one last thing I would add too, is that when we go through a loss, loss causes so much change. Uh, and it causes us to change as people. It causes our views on relationships, on the world to change. And so oftentimes, um, relationships that previously made sense don't really make sense anymore. Or there are people in our lives who are waiting for us to go back to the person we were before or to go back to normal. And that's not what's going to happen for us. So we do find with all sorts of losses, like not just the death of a loved one, but people who maybe um, are in recovery, people who go through a breakup. A lot of times what that means is letting go of some relationships And that is a secondary loss that people absolutely, you know, deserve to acknowledge and to grieve because that's, that's a big thing for a lot of people. So true. And just all of you said, all of what you said makes total sense. And it's interesting because Sal and I, we've identified that we are kind of on the end of the spectrum of the grieving styles. I knew you were going to say that. I could see your face light up when, um, when they mentioned that. (laughs) We are, we literally are like, I'm that feeler I want to talk about it all the time where Sal will just crack on and do things like she's amazing with the practical stuff instrumental uh, yeah, intuitive, yeah. Intuitive <laughs> what are you here. guys yeah. what are you guys I'm instrumental That's... for sure yeah Lisa you're definitely instrumental I would say I probably am as well um yeah I would say I, I probably am as well it's interesting because Lisa and I are so different in other ways like She's very extroverted. I am very introverted. Like I cannot ride on a plane with her because someone always wants to talk to her for like hours on end. And I'm like, 
we just have so would an so would an intuitive griever be someone who's more extroverted? Or I mean, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. No. Like I, I though. I mean, I no. I guess not. I don't know. I haven't thought about that. That's a good question. How those two things yeah. kind yeah. of impact each I other, if if they do. Yeah, because yeah. I'm certainly very extroverted and, and instrumental. I think that intuitive grievers do tend to like connecting with other people about emotion. You know, they like to connect yeah. with other people. I think sometimes that's through talking. I think sometimes it's through, you know, listening yeah. to stories or reading memoirs or like, hearing other people's story, but processing and connecting with other people's stories. But it again, like I think with really looking at the definitions of introverted and extroverted, it sometimes might be that an introverted griever really likes to like one-on-one or in a small group connect, they still might need that Mm. alone time to like recharge, but that they actually (laughs) get that real benefit of processing emotions with other people sometimes. Um, Whereas like, I'm definitely like, no, no, thanks. I do not need to process my emotions. When we talk about, (laughs) um, when we talk about how we grieve and how we cope, we, we like to talk about like all these different things. Like we look at these different spectrums, like intuitive um, and instrumental, extroverted and introverted, because that we think impacts your grief. Uh, people who are maybe lean a little bit more towards being really creative versus people who are really, really rational. Uh, so we do like to, we, we love the um, intuitive instrumental theory, but we also think people should think more about like, what are their preferences? What are their strengths? What are their resources? Because that all has an impact on how we grieve and the coping tools that are going to work for us. Yeah. And Uh, optimism and pessimism. Like I think like some of us are a little bit more naturally optimistic and some are a little more naturally pessimistic. And like that has a real impact on how people grieve and conceptualize their grief. And is it different styles that can really sometimes bump up against each other? Yes, it's so interesting. And you've got to, yeah, look at it holistically, right? You can't be like, right, I am just an instrumental griever and that is just me. And and I think it's interesting that, you know, the three of us are instrumental grievers, but traditionally, when you think about people grieving, when you think about grief, you might think about the intuitive griever, right? Somebody expressing their emotions, <laughs> crying, like that's what people often think of when they think of someone grieving, yes. right? But actually, it's interesting that I think sometimes what I struggled with for a long time being more of a instrumental griever is the fact that I wasn't emotional all the time, that I went back to work and I was okay. I was actually doing pretty well. I could organize my mum's estate and the funeral and all of that stuff uh it actually gave me energy in a weird way uh, but I judged myself for that because I was like what is wrong with me yeah. am I an emotional like do I have no emotions am I a robot like but obviously it is actually a normal response right yeah absolutely and I do think society often thinks about grief as like it's supposed to look like intuitive grief Um, But it's interesting, like, in my mind, I'm picturing some sort of weird, like, time graph, because I think what happens is it, like, it shifts with time, because people then eventually expect intuitive grievers to stop doing all of that emoting, you know what I mean? Like, at some point, it's been, like, too long in people's minds, and so then it gets 
more acceptable to look a little bit different. So I think it's like early on instrumental grievers, people are like, oh, you're avoiding or you're repressing your grief or, you know, it does get judged, Mm -hmm. I think, a little bit sometimes. Um, But then over time, I think intuitive grievers get a little more judged when it's a few years on and they still are showing emotions and, and talking about it. And people are like, what, what shouldn't you be over this by now? No, um, no I was going to say, I do think it's important to recognize that, you know, your what your grief style is and that it is normal and healthy. One of the ways our grief can become disenfranchised is if our grief expression is disenfranchised. Kenneth Kenneth Doka talks about disenfranchised grief, where we sort of are denied the right to grieve. Our grief becomes stigmatized or self-stigmatized. And I I do think often people who are grieving in a way that seems less like that prototypical emotional griever uh, can have their grief stigmatized a little and their... um, they then themselves are saying, what's wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me? So I do think it's important to recognize like all these different ways can be very normal and healthy. Today's podcast sponsor, Once Upon. With Once Upon, you can seamlessly make photo books from your phone, tablet and desktop. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Uh, you know, I have to admit that my grief sesh box is such a mess these days too, Sal. And I loved creating this photo book because it's the perfect way for keeping all of your memories in one place. It really is. And to be honest, my grief sesh box is falling apart as well. And because regular listeners will know that I'm nothing but efficient, um, I love that with this memory book, I actually don't have to spend hours sifting through me old grief sesh box. I can get all my favourite memories of me and mum in one beautiful place in this great photo book. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's this time, it's, it's a time saver as well as being absolutely beautiful. Does that mean that you've cut your grieving time in half, Sal? Oh, I wish. No, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? No, it hasn't cut my grieving time in half, but it's definitely made it easier. What about you, Im? What did you choose from your grief sesh box? Did you have some specific photos that you used for your book? Yeah, look, I really wanted to create a photo book for Layla. I've wanted to for ages, but the thought, obviously, me not being efficient, I found that quite overwhelming, thinking, where the hell do I start with that? Thanks to Grief Brain. But with this, you can literally upload photos from your phone on the go. You can write some captions on the computer and then preview the whole book, which is really easy. It is so easy. And you know what? I think in this day and age, you know, we have so many like photos on our phones, laptops, tablets. It's really easy to lose sight of like all the precious memories that we have. And I don't know about you, but like with photos of my mum, I had some on my phone. I had some on my laptop downloaded from her phone. They were like everywhere. So it was really nice to have this photo book because it was kind of like the perfect way to consolidate all of all of the memories and make sure that you've got all of the photos and memories in a really special place that honors them. So, and I also love that the cover of mine is one of my favorite memories of me and my mum and my favorite photos of her walking me down the aisle, which is hands down. Yeah. One of my faves. So I love that. I can look at that all the time. I love that photo of you and your mum too. And my fave pick, which I picked for the cover was that pic of mum holding Layla as a newborn. It was like their first ever and one of the only few photos I have of them together. So it was super special. And also how easy were they to create? Like literally just do it on your phone, laptop, 
or tablet from the couch or the other way around totally up to you you decide but I just thought it was super super easy to do as well because you know when you've got like grief brain you don't always kind of like you say want to think about another task to add to the list it can be a bit overwhelming but this was really easy if you guys want to create your own photo book to save those precious memories, download the Once Upon app and use our code GM25 for 25% off your photo books. Oh, and just to flag, guys, it's only valid until the 14th of October, 2023. Now back to the show. Thinking back to the intuitive grievers, I spoke to a, what was she, not a psychiatrist, What's it? What's it? I can't think of the name. Having counselor? No. Um, psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Psychotherapist. And it was at the six month mark. And I remember talking to her about the place that I was in, and I was still ruminating, and I was still so emotional. I just couldn't get myself together. So she diagnosed me with complex uh, grief disorder. I was like, great. Here we go. I need another disorder in my life. But that's it. Then here I am doing what society thinks normal grief looks like. And then I get diagnosed with a disorder. So tell us about that. Yeah. I interesting. I mentioned Kenneth Thoka and he said the one, um, I don't remember where I said it. I'm so sorry, Kenneth Thoka. Um, but the, um, eventually he said, most of us do become our grief does become disenfranchised because society does say all right time's up it's time to move on it's time to put that all away in a box somewhere so i yeah absolutely i think that that is sadly a very common experience yeah and i think that now that you know they've added prolonged grief disorder as a disorder to the DSM and the ICD. Mm -hmm. It's just layered complications on that with people getting this diagnosis and being like, what does this mean? There's so much misunderstanding about the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, like it, people feel like it is um, really pathologizing grief in such a problematic way. And, you know, there are tons of people who have a hard time adjusting after loss, but like at six months, nobody should be, you know, at at the point where somebody is sitting here saying there's a problem with what your grief looks like at six Mm. months after a loss. It's really, it it really, really is something that bothers, I think bothers us a lot that there's that risk that people are going to use diagnosis like that in this way. It's awful. And I think it plays into then how society perceives grievers, right? Like, because it makes people assume that you should be over it after six months, right? And it kind of plays into the perception piece that, you know, we're all doing work around trying to change and the stigma around grieving and grieving after a certain amount of time. How can people communicate with others, like their needs or what's going on for them with their grief, if they find that people maybe aren't understanding, you know, what's happening for them or they don't really understand grief? Is there anything that you found from the work that you do that works really well? I mean, I think that one thing that we just talk to people about is being really specific. I think it's remembering that oftentimes people are well-intentioned and they do want to support us. They just have no idea. Like they feel really, really lost. And I think that we as people sometimes have a hard time giving people feedback, like especially when we're grieving. Um, but it's just 
being really comfortable being able to say to people like, Hey, I'm feeling really lonely and isolated. I feel like everybody has like kind of ghosted me. It would be really helpful if people could check in periodically or set up some plans over the next month or whatever it like really ask specifically for what we need and kind of say how things have made us feel or, or the, you know, the other way around obviously can be like any different situation of what we're feeling. But I think sometimes, again, going back to like how in grief we're struggling so much, we're already feeling uh, drained. Like the idea of being vulnerable and being like, hey, I, I need some extra support. What you're doing isn't enough or isn't working. I think that feels like a big leap for people. But I mean, they, when they've done research around this, they've really found that when people can give their support system that feedback and say, hey, this was really helpful or this wasn't helpful, but here's what really feels like it would be more helpful or what I don't have. No surprise, people suddenly feel a lot more supported by their support system because people feel like, oh, okay, now I know what to do. It helps me, you know, to be able to actually do it. So I think spending time with that, like really thinking about if we're feeling those that that our support system isn't there, being like, what what is it? What am I looking for from people? And can I can I ask for that really directly and see even if I feel like people aren't going to be able to show up for me, like one thing I say to people all the time is like, you have to give people a chance to prove you right or prove you wrong, you know? So you have to tell them if you don't tell them, then you have no idea whether they're able to step up for what you need or not. And then, you know, maybe they're not, but you've given them the chance to like, to do that one way or the other. It all comes down to expectations, right? We put all these expectations onto people and then we, when they don't live up to it, we get really hurt and we're not communicating those expectations. Like I can't tell you the amount of emails I've written since I went into grief, just like laying out my expectations so we can all get really clear to avoid like family conflicts, which there's been a lot of, but yeah, it's, it's expectations yeah. is a biggie. Yeah. I, I think that, um, for some reason that made me think of one piece of advice we often give people, maybe it comes down to expectations a little bit, uh, is that we also want to think about our support system realistically and have realistic expectations with different people in our support system because we are all just like people who do like really awkward things and really great things from time to time. And we are not great at everything, right? So sometimes somebody would be a really good person to take you out for a night on the town to get out of the house and to have some laughs, okay? But the, they're not the best person to maybe confide in. Maybe you have a sister who is really great in a crisis because she likes to swing into action mode and get things done, but that's not what you need. You don't want advice. You don't want somebody to, to take over and do things. You just want someone to listen. So we really encourage people to think about their support systems. And sometimes we use the uh, exercise of thinking about it like in high school when they give you like the superlatives, like most likely to succeed and best smile and best dress. Like think about it that way, like most likely to be non-judgmental about what I I'm going through most likely to listen without giving me giving me advice most likely to be reliable to drive my kids to school um, on Tuesdays so we really encourage people to think about what people are realistically going to be able to offer because otherwise we're sending people up for failure yeah I think another thing that has helped Im and I in our grief is setting boundaries especially with family members and friends. Is this something that you see 
happen a lot in the work that you do? Do you have any advice on like how to set good boundaries if somebody doesn't know where to start? I think because I, we've been in the online space for so long, I think so many times we hear from people who are more focused on feeling abandoned and less focused about on needing to set boundaries. Um, but I do think that it can be you know, really helpful for people who, who do need it if they feel like, especially with their family relationships, that the, it has really put strains that are requiring people to set boundaries. And I think the most important, like one of the things that we just remind people all of the time, like the boundary is for you. Um, I think a lot of times people think of boundaries as like, this is a threat I'm putting out there for another person. And being able to get into that like healthy space of boundaries, of being able to say a boundary is just me expressing my need and it is helping someone else understand what will happen if they can't meet that need in a given situation. And so just laying that really out clearly. And if saying somebody, you know, it continues to bring up something that you don't want to talk about. We talk about this with like when people sometimes feel like they're family members are pushing, like, when are you going to start dating again? Or like, mm. I want to set you up with somebody and they're like not interested at all. And just being able to say to somebody like, Oh, my boundary is I'm not going to have this conversation. We, we can't talk about my dating life anymore. And if you bring it up, I'm going to have to end the conversation. Like that's not a threat. That's just me expressing my need that I need us to not talk about this anymore. And here's what's going to happen. So it sets clear expectations for everybody because going back to expectations, that is what's so important. Now the person on the other side of that conversation knows they have said to me very clearly that they're not going to talk about their dating life anymore or, you know, whatever it is, the boundary that we're trying to set with someone. Um, and again, we can't control whether or not a person is going to to be able to stick to what we've set and what we say our need is, but we we can't expect them to magically know our boundaries if we don't lay them out and like set clear expectations for people and then let them know like what's going to happen if they can't maintain that boundary. So it's, I think it's like boundaries are one of those things that it just takes practice, but often it ends up being helpful for both people because it sets clear expectations. And a lot of times that's just what people need. Like they just want to know what to be able to expect out of interactions. Yes. And just back to what you were saying earlier about how when we're grieving, we're so super sensitive and we just feel like we can't take anything else on. Like I think something that is positive, I'm going to say that word, but it's not toxic positive that's come our whole lives. And since we've like got thrown into grief, we've had to really dig deep and look into ourselves and being like, why am I so uncomfortable putting in a boundary? Why am I so uncomfortable saying no or telling this person that what they've said makes me feel uncomfortable? Like we, we've been on a real journey of like looking at what people pleasing is as well and how we've just been functioning like that for our whole lives. Like I think it's really common for people as well. Is that something that you hear come up a lot in your work? Yeah, I, I do think we hear a lot of people feel that they, in grief, they're basically in triage mode, right? Um, and they feel like they can barely get by, but they feel like they have to sort of put on this front. Some people say like a, a mask to go out into the world um, to sort of satisfy other people. You know, they say, I'm fine. They smile. They say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing these things to, to help myself cope. 
and inside they're feeling like just that hurricane of of grief and struggle uh and so i i do think we hear a lot of times that people do struggle with that need to present something that they aren't actually feeling and i, I think that to a degree that is in in an effort to satisfy other people a little bit or maybe we feel like oh we don't want to talk about it because it's going to upset the other person or it's going to be a downer, right? So we don't want to make yeah. our needs the most important thing in the conversation or in the room. Uh, so I do think that we hear a lot of people struggling with that need to kind of make other people feel feel comfortable at the expense of their own grief and their own comfort. Just needing to practice saying like, I don't have the bandwidth. Like I'm, I can't, I can't do that. I can't take things on, you know, for people who have always stepped up and helped other people when other people needed help or picked up slack or done things in the family or helped in the kid's classroom or whatever. It's a real change to have to Mm. practice being like, Nope, I'm sorry. I can't, can't do it. Um, Mm. and so I think for some people that comes much more easily than for other people. And if you've never done it before and you're having it to practice it for the first time in grief, it's a really, it can feel really difficult to be like navigating it for the first time while you're also in the tornado of all the grief emotions that are coming up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, tornado of grief emotions. I like that analogy because it really is, isn't it? And um, you mentioned yeah. just then about people feeling like sometimes they can't really express what's going on for them. They might not be able to truly talk about what's going on. And something that we have heard in that context from a lot of our listeners is ambiguous grief and people grieving a complicated relationship, but not really being able to articulate or express to people why they're feeling the way they're feeling or even know it themselves. Is ambiguous grief something that you hear a lot from, like your community? Are there any common themes that you see when it comes to, like, grieving someone that maybe we just didn't have the greatest relationship with? Yeah, I mean, we talk about this a lot, I think, because I think this is something, like, personally that... I'm glad to see, again, in things that have changed in the grief space that people are talking about more. I think still not nearly enough, but like when we first started in this work, like no one was talking about ambiguous grief or that's how, that's how it felt. Pauline Boss Mm -hmm. has been talking about ambiguous grief since the 1970s. So I don't want to act like (laughs) no one was, but, um, I mean, it just wasn't that huge common conversation. And for me, like after my dad died, my sister developed a really bad heroin addiction, like within just like right after my dad died in a really short period of time after that. And so I was so tuned in to like what it means to grieve somebody who's still alive, like to be in this place of, you know, grieving my dad, but then also really grieving like my sister and who she was Mm -hmm. before this addiction started. And, um, the way that our relationship changed and how our whole family changed and it felt like there was no language for that. Like there, you know, that wasn't something that I feel like, um, I knew at the time to, to even call grief, even though it was clearly grief. And when I first learned about this concept of ambiguous grief, I was like, Oh my gosh, yes, this is the, this is the word. This is the language. Like, this is what, um, I had so clearly experienced. And I think that that's what we so often hear with whatever the relationship is that somebody is grieving, whether it's one like that with addiction, where it's a, that complicated relationships or estrangement 
or if it's things like dementia and, you know, things where people there with so many people who have family members where they feel like almost guilty calling it grief because they're like, no, mm-hmm. the person's still here. I'm grateful that, you know, mom's still alive, but you know, she's not the same person and we don't have the same relationship. And so I think a big part of ambiguous grief is sometimes just people don't feel like they have the right to use the word grief, even though that is so much what it is. Uh, you know, it's this loss of the relationship and of who that person was and of who we used to be in relation to that person. You know, we exist mm. in these roles and relationships. And so I think a lot of what we do in talking about it is just helping people to feel like they have permission to use the that word, um, you know, just because our grief is all different for each of us. Like it doesn't mean that it's not grief. And I think for a lot of people, there is a relief in just being able to say, yeah, that that is what I'm feeling. And now I can start thinking about how do I deal with this and how do I acknowledge it and know that I can still be grieving that loss and still love and support that person. And I can still be hopeful that maybe things are going to change again if, if it is in the case of something like substance abuse or, um, you know, mental illness or things like that. Um, but a lot of times people will feel like if I say that it's grief, I'm giving up on a person or something. And, you know, we really try to help people to understand that, no, like we can hold these things at the same time. We can be grieving that loss and we can still be hopeful that maybe the relationship will get repaired or the whatever's going on with that person might change. Do you have any helpful coping strategies for anyone who may be dealing with ambiguous grief? I think one of the biggest things that I, I personally have found helpful and that I see be so helpful to other people is just understanding what Lisa just described, that ability to have two seemingly contradictory things exist at the same time. So we use the term dialectical thinking uh, to be able to say that I can feel both stronger than I felt before and also feel incredibly vulnerable and weak in many ways, in ways I didn't before. Those things feel contradictory, but but they're not really. And I think being able to say like, I, I both am grateful that my loved one is still here with me. I'm also grieving the fact that maybe they are significantly changed for some reason. So these two different things can exist at the same time. And I I think that once people open themselves up to being able to allow those two things to exist, then uh, it it, it opens up a world of possibilities uh, for people. Yeah, I think that that's like the biggest, I mean, I think that's dialectical thinking is I think with ambiguous grief, like one of the biggest things that people can do. I I think one of the other things that is really helpful is really looking at like what can give us feelings of hope or calm or connection based on the present moment. So often in ambiguous grief, we're thinking about the past, like what the relationship used to look like. Or we're thinking about this like idealized, romanticized version of what it could look like again in the future if that relationship gets repaired or that person finally apologizes or something like that. And I think sometimes the most helpful thing that we can do for ourselves is say, let's imagine like 
nothing's going to change this week, right? Like it's not going to be what it used to be. It's not going to be this perfect thing we're imagining in the future, but is there something this week that could make me feel connected to that person or to the memory of what that used to be, or could just make me feel good this week in myself, you know, to be mm -hmm. able to really focus on this current moment rather than the past or the present. Cause I, the past or the future, I think one of the things that's so hard about ambiguous grief and different than bereavement related losses than deaths is like, there's this ongoing uncertainty. Like it's all, you never know if it's, if, is there something I could do right now to repair this relationship or should do, or is there something I could have done to help this person get help? Is there some other, you know, clinical trial I could help my mom with dementia to get into? Like it's always uncertain. Whereas with bereavement, it's, it's devastating, but like, it's final. We know that there's nothing <laughs> that we can be doing in a certain moment to, to change that, you know, that piece that our person and the person in our lives has died. And so I think that ongoing uncertainty makes it really mm -hmm. hard. So sometimes just coming into like right now today <laughs> without trying to change anything or fix anything or worry about that, like what could make today a little bit better? Yes, that's fantastic advice. Like you say, because when someone dies, there's that finality, right? It is what it is. Whereas, yeah, when the person's still alive and it's ambiguous, there isn't that kind of line in the sand, so to speak. So that's brilliant advice. And guys, thank you for your time. You guys are grief legends. You are doing such important work in the space. So it's really incredible to be able to have this conversation with you and we're so grateful for everything that you do and many of our listeners are going to be wanting to find out more to read all these amazing articles that we've been talking about so where can they find you oh well, thank you so much for having us we love being here we listen to your podcast and we love it uh, they can find our website, uh, www.whatsyourgrief.com. That's really our main like hub, our home and everything else we do sort of extends from there. Uh, so that's the main place. And we always do also invite people to email us if they have, uh, questions, uh, about grief, about what we do, anything at whatsyourgrief at gmail.com. And we're on all the socials. Amazing. And go and check out their book as well. It's brilliant. Guys, yeah. it's been such a, an interesting conversation. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here, which I thought we would because you guys, I'm not going to say you know it all because who knows it all. Grief is one of those things that we're <laughs> yeah. forever learning about, right? But there's just so much helpful information. I highly recommend our listeners to go and check out your website as well. As always, a huge thanks for tuning in, guys. We really hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode. And before we go, we have a little favor to ask. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast as it really helps other grievers find us too. Until next time. 